Welcome to episode 6 of The Transport. It only takes and never gives. The Transport by Alex Ames You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Komiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Hello to the sixth episode of The Transport. I enjoy producing it. I hope you enjoy this story. Let me know what you think. Leave a note on my InstaFace Twitter or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. If you liked it, leave stars or ratings or comments. My handle is Alex Ames Writing on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Remember, there's also the book in case you are unable to keep the suspense in bay. Before we start, let's see what happened so far. The transport crew inside the secret base prepares for the next day. The alien spaceship is moved on top of the 300 plus wheel transport system. Mac and Cena wonder what's going on as they feel that their officers are curiously absent from the action. Meanwhile, Legion Analytics facility manager Herbert, who in reality is hosting a mind-controlling alien, doesn't like his new alien boss, the Supreme Commander, and his commands. In preparation of the great day tomorrow, the converted humans under alien control take a trip to the bowling alley and take shooting lessons. Chapter 15 Leo After work was over, Leo and Eva left the cubicles around five, walking down the lobby stairs onto the parking lot. The blonde woman on the Harley waited for her at the same spot as in the morning. Still clad in black leather, still no helmet, still extremely sexy. Eva said, there's my mother, see you tomorrow, Leo, and jumped onto the back of the motorcycle. The mother gave Leo a slow look over, eyes unreadable. Evaluating me as son-in-law material, Leo thought, or as a daughter predator. Both roles will work for me, please, please. The bike started with a low growl and the two ladies took off again against the one-way direction, to wherever. Eva hadn't answered any of the few personal questions Leo had dared to ask. He sighed. Sure, to be expected. She was a hot-looking babe, knew it, and probably had to fend off legions of boys. Unanswered questions were a good method to keep personal distance, and peace of mind, and virtue. Well... Good thing he had the privilege to see her again tomorrow. 
It was the first time in a long while that Leo actually was looking forward to another day at work. When Leo came home that evening, he was still flashed from the daily exposure to Eva and her mother. He was horny, that much was sure. Any heterosexual would be. Life was unfair. He drowned his sorrow in four episodes of Big Bang Theory reruns with pizza and beer. He looked down at his belly, thought about a fat hippo and a sleek panther. He stopped after the second beer and left a quarter of the pizza. Eva made a better person out of him. Man, that smile. Man, that ass. His phone rang from far away. Sticks too much time on my hand, insistent, slowly bringing him around. He was sprawled out on his couch, Sheldon on the screen, episode forwarded automatically for a while, it seemed. Uh-oh, bad style of living flashed through Leo's head. Eva wouldn't condone this. The phone did not stop ringing. Yeah, he croaked. His tongue felt as if covered with thick felt and his brain as if suffocated by a cushion. Leo, this is Charlene. Good for you. Jesus, what time is it? Sorry to call you that late, but I'm sort of desperate. Have you seen Wendell tonight? Wendell? Ah, that Charlene. They had met at a company barbecue outing, a hot redhead, four grades above of what Wendell ever deserved. And Leo knew that his working buddy slept around with one of the lab assistants. But he couldn't tell Charlene that. Yes, was he with you? Me? No. I saw him mm, today, yesterday, last morning, in the parking lot. We talked and that was the last of it. He replayed his day alongside Eva, but was sure that he had not run into Wendell again all day. His car was still in the lot, though, when I left, five-ish. I called everyone, no one saw him. Listen, might be nothing. Maybe he's just on a night out, you know us boys. Not Wendell, he never does that, Charlene sobbed. He always calls. Sorry, anything else I can do? Should I call any other colleague, ask around? No thanks, Leo. Again, sorry about the late call. She sniffled aloud and disconnected. Leo stared at the receiver. Wendell, you a-hole. Some people didn't understand what they had. On the other hand, Leo spoke aloud as he looked around in the mess he called his living room. I know I have nothing except for a sexy co-worker. He rubbed his face. Other people's problems. He decided to continue to become a better person and cleaned up the ugliest mess. He trashed beer cans and pizza boxes, brushed his teeth, scrubbed his face clean with soap and went to bed properly. He dreamt of two hot girls in leather jackets and fantastic legs walking slowly in front of him. And even though this all played out in slow motion, Leo still had problems following them, 
falling step by step behind, out of breath. Eva looked over her shoulder, her incredible big brown eyes shining, her jet black hair in perfect order, smiling at him. Can you keep up, Leo? Chapter 16 Herbert After the training, out in the bowling alley, the Legion Analytics Nightflies traveled back to the headquarters. Some of them had to continue training, this time watching instruction videos of how to set up metal scaffolding while the designated attack team had the order to rest. Herbert, once more, tried to convince the Supreme Commander that it was too risky to expose him to the live action. If I get killed, the whole loading procedure will be in jeopardy, sir. That would be irresponsible. The Supreme Commander looked firmly at Herbert. Is our plan safe and sound, Herbert? Absolutely, sir. Is everyone trained as good as they can be? Sir, that is not the... The Commander interrupted him. It is. The community can go ahead, independent of the fate of a single. For queen and community, that had been our motto for hundreds of thousands of years. Tomorrow's operation is risky, but I'm fully confident of its feasibility. Your place is with Smitty. There's nothing of importance here to do. He looked at him in concern. Is your human host acting up? No, I think the long duration of my conversion shows its effect, Supreme Commander. The consciousness of my host affects my own mind. Interesting. It's how long? Close to 20 years. That's an extremely long time. Few longer periods have been recorded. Sorry, I must check with the elders. The Supreme Commander slapped Herbert on the shoulder. In 24 hours, all will be over. Have faith. Get some rest. I have, Supreme Commander. I will. With that, his leader left him standing alone to tend to some other matter. Herbert went into his old office, where he had positioned an inflatable mattress and a sleeping bag. He had to get rest, otherwise his host couldn't carry him through the next day. He set his phone alarm to 7 a.m. and lay awake for a long time. Part 2 The Road Chapter 17 Charles Charles took his car to the Pentagon in the early morning, two hours before the transport would leave its parking place in New Mexico. He hadn't slept well, too many what-if thoughts on his mind. 
He was still relatively new at this gatekeeping stuff and hated his old mentor and boss for ambushing him with the assignment. Fresh out of CIA boot camp, his first harmless analyst jobs under his belt, his mentor had informed Charles about the cancer and that Charles needed to take over a super-secret long-term project. Charles had learned about the gatekeeper responsibilities knowing nothing about the detail. Because that had been the catch. He had to agree first to the role as gatekeeper before knowing what he was gating and keeping. Charles had felt privileged to receive such an important task so early in his career. How spectacular could it be? And after a brief consideration, he had accepted. What a surprise he had been in for. A young army lieutenant brought him through security and into the depth of the building. Charles had visited the Pentagon many times before, but always only in the office tracts for briefings on stuff he had analyzed for his day job. This was the first time that he stepped into a real situation room. Many monitors, some people quietly working on computer consoles. A large screen displayed a topographical map of the route of the transport, a red dot indicating the current position of Tin Can within the hangar. Another shaky image showed a real-life feed, high-altitude imagery. A series of monitors on the side showed feeds of empty conference rooms. The aide introduced Charles to the crew on the site, three specialists who took care of the different data and video feeds and ensured communication with the various involved parties. How much do you need to know about the mission to do your work? Charles asked the group. We were asked not to ask questions, sir, the lead specialist clarified. Don't worry, we can do our jobs, even if we are not completely in the picture. Where is everyone else? The specialist pointed at the three pictures of empty conference rooms. The units join through video. You can sit over there, gives you the best view. Coffee is on the sideboard. The indicated chair was soft and comfortable, and Charles doubted that he could sit longer in it without falling asleep. He plopped down, and the specialist led him through the various display panels. The upper conference monitor showed a huge guy in army fatigues entering. He was squarish with muscles everywhere, a bald head and steely grey eyes. If there was anyone to have handily around when your car broke down or was attacked by terrorists, this was the guy, Charles thought. Good morning, Major Joe Argos, Army Rangers, the man introduced himself with a deep raspy voice. The man looked as if he could carry any low tasks to his unit on his own white shoulders. Our unit provides security on the ground. Charles Norman, CIA, Tincan, Ops Lead. I ran a video conference last night with a team and met your Major Bristol virtually. You have some influence, sir. Argos stared right into the camera. The President himself endorsed your mission personally. A definite first. Care to give us some details what's going on and what we're moving here? Charles shook his head. Sorry, but Tin Can's purpose is to be kept secret. 
Major Bristol on the ground knows. His team will only see the covered object, never the real deal. Even if they are bound to confidentiality under the Secrecy Act, you will never know. And even asking your men to reveal Tin Can to you will get you court-martialed. You are quick to make friends, are you? Argos said, studying him like a butterfly collector his latest acquisition. Charles shrugged, keeping his cool. Wish I could tell you more, but my role does not allow this. It is secret and it's big. Secret and big are my middle names, Argos sat down. He looked like a shark evaluating a triathlon starter field. Nice try, Major. Charles already started sweating underneath his suit jacket. This was going to be a long, long day. After a few minutes, two more video screens came to life and more high ranks appeared. One colonel leading the transport unit that ran the logistics and the leader of the air force unit assigned to guard the open space. Both looked clean-shaven, square-faced and annoyed. Rocca, Air Force, my birds are guarding your transport and coordinating the no-fly zone with the civilian world. Delta and United hate you already. Thanks for making it possible. It's necessary, believe me, Charles replied. I'd rather know the background than your niceties, Rocker gruffly gave back. Man, were these soldier types ever happy? The third screen showed a chubby-faced woman with short blonde hair and a round face. Colonel Sanders, 12th Transport Battalion. A female voice with a razor blade edge. Lieutenant's Kimmick's team is yours? The very same. And let me tell you, I am not happy to operate in the dark. We would like to understand what we are transporting. I spoke to Kimmick and his team yesterday. They understand what Tin Can is all about, Charles reassured her. Hierarchies grew very nervous when the upper levels didn't know what's going on. You expect him to operate efficiently, but at the same time he's unable to communicate openly with his command. You must have had other operations where... Actually, no, you are the first. Charles stared at the video monitor. A battle you can't win now, man. Cut it short. There's always a first for anything, Charles said, more courageous than he felt. I'm sure the team will do fine. Dr. Norman, her voice could shave a full hipster beard. Let me tell you how this works. This is no discussion, Colonel. You have your orders, Charles barked back. Maybe that was the way to talk to these guys. He was the gatekeeper and he was losing his patience. You have been instructed by my valid authority codes and the National Security Advisor herself, reconfirmed by the President last night. Was there anything, I mean anything, unclear in theirs and my instructions? All three officers stayed silent. Argos, the ranger, stifled a smile. Norman three, military zero. For now. One specialist on the computer console cleared his throat to overplay the tension. Tin can's moving. 
Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic. And France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly, there are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other retailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, by the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 18 Zina Zina's finger tingled a personal telltale tick that the transport was about to start. Mac's team was running through the latest items of their checklist, while their own team ran through the pre-wheel rolling list. Lieutenant Kimmick nervously stood beside the giant rig, a little lost, visibly unsure whether to step in or to let the teams do their jobs. One of the many displays of Cena's command cockpit showed the under-load timers showing the time the object was in the hands of the MMTU cluster, counting up the minutes for the last 10 hours and 5 minutes. So far, knock on non-existing wood without problems. The hangar floor had been solid all the way through, post-war quality, only a few cracks from the permanent pressure bearing down. The comm gave a double beep, announcing an incoming team message. Load ready. Repeat, load ready. Max's voice sounded in Sina's earpiece. Copy, load ready. Prepare moving wheels. Sina sat on the throne, a ten-yard-high command center with glass all around that gave her a full 360 degrees view in theory. But twenty yards behind her loomed the bulk of the transport blocking parts of her rear view. Mac's team had covered the whole spaceship in a white plastic tarp that made it look like a crystal art object. Low-tech protection from curious eyes. From her seat, she could see all tech readings that also showed on the computers of her team. She switched channels. Team, we are good to go. Status? Gorsuch came first as he was the driver, six yards below Sina in his own glass box. All wheels green. Powertrain at cruise capacity, Gherkin replied. He operated the power generation units in front and back. As if to underline his readiness, the motors of the generators gave a loud roar left and right of Sina, 
belching hot exhaust into the air. Stop your farting, Carl, Sina said. Distribution? Ludovic came on the line. Oh well. Sina saw Kimmick in front of the transport without a headset, opened the side window and caught his attention by waving. She made a circular motion with her index finger and gave a thumbs up, ready to roll. Kimmick nodded, returned the thumbs up and jumped into his jeep. Sina switched to all stations. Stand by to move wheels. And to make really sure, while thinking of the kid's fate hundred times a day, she repeated, Stand by to move wheels. It was the final warning to step away from any of the 310 wheels. She settled back in a comfortable ergonomic chair and looked ahead. The security details started their check and chatter, led by Major Bristol. Falcon ready, no eyes, came from the helicopters. Goose, no contacts, called in the air squadron responsible for the outer perimeter. Another voice came in, the AVAX radar plane. Corridor control, confirm no-fly compliance, no contacts. Thumbs up from Major Bristol, who entered the front Humvee. Open the gates, Kimmy commanded to the base personnel. He had found his headset eventually. The huge steel hangar doors started to open. First, only a small vertical crack of light, getting wider and wider, more and more morning sunlight shining in. Five yards, ten, twenty, the sixty feet high folding doors made the way for the rig and its unique load. Sina pressed the All Stations button once more. This was the moment she loved most. The gigantic beast beginning to move. All the work so far leading to this moment. Wheels in motion. Get it going, Ivan. Driver copies. Wheels in motion, Gore such said and touched the commands on the touchpad in front of him. He briefly turned towards Sina, gave her an encouraging thumbs up. She had to smile. Ivan was contagious in his enthusiasm for every new transport project. Laser pointers painted marks onto the concrete of the huge cave. The maximum width and angle of development that showed the intended pathway of the rig for the next 20 yards. A small vibration told Sina that the powertrains were doing the jobs. Various readouts made little jerks. Air pressure and wheels and load distributions showed that something was changing slowly at first, but a few seconds later she could see the wheels in her direct line of sight turning inch by inch, degree by degree. Confirm, wheels in motion, Sina broadcasted. Phase one of the transport was over. The speed picked up, measured in metric meters per minute on the displays, all wheels doing the synchronized slow dance. When they had reached the open gates after three minutes, sunlight hit the driver's cabin first, then Sina's throne, and the speed settled at 50 meters a minute, half the speed of walking. Do we fit? Sina asked on the channel to Yuma Mac as the bulk of the object approached the upper frame of the gate. Two feet to spare, the loading master replied from behind her, sitting in a similar control tower at the back of the transport 
And we're clear. Sina looked left and right. The feeder to the runway was not wide enough for them, so the outer modules ran on desert floor. She called Private Shiva, who managed the left side modules. Ankit, how's theory holding up in practice? Five inch soil squeeze as practiced, eight inch as is, within limits. The hydraulics could equalize the wheels up to two feet before the loading master had to step in with mitigating actions of his own. Same here, Casper called out from the right. After ten minutes, they crossed the runway. Sina turned back and admired the huge bulk of payload under the white canopy, a majestic sight. Turn one came after another twenty minutes of rolling. During the ride, Sina's team lowered the tire pressure by 30% to increase the rubber footprint and lower the per square inch pressure. Many wheels were no longer on solid concrete but on softer asphalt or bare desert floor. Ivan Gorsuch made sure that the available solid ground was used optimally to keep as many wheels on asphalt as possible. Sina oversaw the results as the software showed various options of movement. But all within parameters, Gorsuch was an experienced operator who trusted his readings. Still, everyone held their breath. You never knew with desert ground. Mac came on the line. We have a spiking at four o'clock. The baby's shifting. Sina spoke calmly. Gorsuch, crawl. Casper, your sector. Did we sink in somewhere? Copy. Crawl two yards a minute, Gorsuch confirmed, and Sina felt the rig's momentum changing. She glanced behind her, but of course the object lay safe and sound in its cradle. Despite glitches, they had done a terrific job. From her perch, Sina could see Casper climbing over the small flexible bridges between the MMTU modules to investigate. Sometimes the ultrasonic sensors got confused by bushes or dust and gave wrong readings. Sina's stomach clenched. Casper was an experienced rigger. But the situation was like the one that had led to the kid's death last year. Don't slip, Casper, she prayed. Casper vanished from her view and came in on the intercom a minute later. Yeah, we are sinking. We need to give the sector more inches until Max stops bitching. And I need Ludovic over here to help me clean the sensors. Sector 4, level coming up, pressure coming down, Gherkin announced. The wheels in Sector 4 would lift the MMTU units by some inches to accommodate the softer ground and reduce the tire pressure even more. Mac came back. Reading looks better. Back to the green. The Mac is happy again. Sina copied. Great, Ivan, we will remain on crawl until Casper and Ludovic finish cleaning. The task took another ten minutes. Dust was a constant issue in desert transport. One by one, sensor lights turned green and the rig sped up again, slowly completed the turn. All wheels had to turn in the exact correct sequence and angle to keep the load distributed evenly. The laser markings on the desert floor showed the progress, the compass on a display too. 
The highway pointed at a 93 degree course and the numbers slowly counted down from the previous course of 170 degrees. When it was clear that the calculations could be trusted and Mac confirmed once more the proper load balance, Cena felt her inattention waning and turned her attention to the stretch of road before them for the first time. Whatever funding program had kept the secret base alive had also made sure that this stretch of Highway 453 was straight, extra wide and extra solid. The road had four extra wide lanes plus generous shoulders, benefit of super secret infrastructure planning. The engineering guys have done a better job than my mother-in-law at spring cleaning, Mac crackled on the intercom. As long as she doesn't cook for us, Sina answered back. She had had the doubtful honor of being present at Mac's family's Thanksgiving table a few years back. But Mac was right. Anything that could be remotely seen as an obstacle had been eradicated from view. Power and phone lines had been pulled out and stapled away from the road. All cables rolled up on wooden drums. Bushes were gone in a corridor of 50 yards to each side. Clean, red-yellowish desert ground in stark contrast to the black line that vanished into eternity in gentle up and downs. Sina noticed movement in the corner of her eye on the left and saw one of their helicopters hovering about a mile out over the desert. The other had to be on her right somewhere. She could hear no sound over the MMTU's hydraulic hums and power generator droning in her control cabin. Bristol's ground team moved into position two. Two transport vehicles, one Humvee and one people transporter, took the lead. One 200 yards out, the other one right in front of the MMTU. The heavy machine guns looked deadly and had attentive rangers behind them. Sina glanced at her rear-facing camera monitor and saw that the two rear-guard vehicles also had moved into position. And then, as if to underline the importance of the job ahead, a jet screamed over them, wiggling its wings as a greeting. Bristol came on the intercom. Rock and roll. The small caravan moved forward, and after various wheel adjustments for the desert floor, left and right, speed finally hit 10 miles per hour. Kimmick's jeep ran along the desert floor and overtook the rig. Sergeant, ready for our field trip? He called through the calm. Mac, you have command of a load and wheels. Mac and Cena acknowledged. Cena switched to broadcast to inform the team. The lieutenant and I are going to check out the first half of our route ahead. Steady as she goes, Mac leads. He had the same controls available in his control cabin on top of the rear tower of the MMTU cluster. She left her air-conditioned command post, the full heat of the desert air hitting her like a baseball bat, reminding her of her arrival. Yesterday, really only 24 hours ago? The ladder down brought her onto the little walkway that led over to the power unit from where another ladder led down to the ground, the super big wheels slowly turning like a giant clockwork left and right of her. The rig now was moving at 10 miles an hour enough to get hurt if you jumped and stumbled, and Cena did not need that, not today. Again, a small poke into her heart when she thought of the kid.
She gave Kimmick a wave and the officer drove closer to the side ladder, matching the speed of the transport. Sina took a big step onto the jeep and sat. Kimmick hit the pedal and the jeep jumped forward, speeding up past the guard vehicles and stalling at 60 miles per hour. Over the wind, Kimmick shouted, Well done so far, Sergeant. Sir, Sina answered. I expected nothing less, though. Your commendations and mission evaluations before the incident were stellar. Thank you, sir, Sina shouted back. May I ask a question, sir? Why is a non-logistics officer of lowest rank leading the mother of all transports? Kimmick asked, instead with a smile. Something along this line, Sina admitted. The masters of the universe wanted to contain the number of eyes on the object, I guess, and see it from the good side. I cannot micromanage you or Mac. Mac has this officer hazing trick against meddling. It involves grease and your shoes. Thanks for the warning, but don't worry. You guys managed the mission fine. Kimmick tapped the wheel. I'm just an overeducated driver. Kimmick tried to sound cool and flippant, but Sina was sure that her CO lied. Lame excuse. But you never questioned an officer. Maybe he was the on-site spook? Secret transport spelled CIA all over and Kimmick seemed the only one of the newbies that fit the job description. The other guy, Norman, appeared to be a desk jockey from the looks. But maybe that made him so effective as an undercover agent? Sina stopped playing mind games with herself. Who cared about his crap anyway? She had a job to do. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug. If you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can't bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion. If you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.ames.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexameswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out. <laughs>